Um, well, most of us, at some point, church background or not, heard about, learned about, thought about prayer. And uh, so what we're going to do is talk about how prayer really works. And uh, not that I'm going to come here and say I have all the answers, but I certainly have a lot of questions. And probably uh, over your lifetime, you've had quite a few questions as well. Um, why are some prayers answered and some aren't? Or what, you know, how does, how does the whole thing actually work? What about the Lord's Prayer that he taught us? And uh, we're going to sort of dive into all of those. But if I can, I want to just back up even a little bit more, like the thing before the thing, all right? And um, I want to take you to an event that happened. It's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, where when Jesus dies, it says in, in Matthew 27 that at the minute he died, he cries out with a loud shout. And when he did, um, there was a, 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 a veil in the sanctuary of the temple. And when Jesus died, Matthew records, it was torn from top to bottom. And what I wanted to do is to talk about this because I think this is important before we talk about prayer. And uh, the reason that this particular event is important about this veil that was torn is it tells us something about God. So if we're going to pray, we're going to pray to God, but we need to know a little bit about God before we pray. Now, stay with me. Um, I hope you take advantage and sent, looks like most of you did send your young ones down to Kids World because from time to time, I like to educate us a little bit. Are you with me? Everybody look and nod. All right, so educate. That is, some things you tell kids that aren't exactly 100% the truth. Is that true? Anybody like, I see one little one or two, so I won't spoil the whole thing, but like a chimney and a red suit? Is anybody with me? Okay, so, and, and it works. It works for a while, all right? And so that's okay. That's not evil or whatever. It just is, right? But the same thing is true sort of of our faith. We sort of have a view of God that works as a child. Are you with me? But it doesn't work. This is so important. Listen, it doesn't work after a certain time. Because it just isn't that simple. And so you reach these, these critical points in your faith journey where you have to walk away. Um, the, the statistics are, are astounding at how many people walk away from their faith at, when they get to college. They're astounding. And that is the fault of us pastors and teachers. Because we've taught you the, um, the red suit version of God, and we didn't give you an adult version to transition to very well. Are you with me? And so at that point when you started thinking, I don't know if he fits in the chimney. You know what I mean? Is anybody with me? I'm trying not to ruin anything. Last chance for kids' world. All right, here we go. I don't know if he fits in everything. Then you start to ask questions. You go, that doesn't work. And this is what happens to people in our faith. We grow older and we go, that just doesn't work. And so then your choice with kind of just keeping it as like the family thing to do for holidays or appeasing, you know, your mother-in-law or whatever, but it doesn't really become a vital thing for you. And so, like Paul said, 1 Corinthians 13, he says, when I was a child, I thought like a child and I reasoned like a child. When you get older, you start thinking, there was some lack of reasoning in that whole story I listened to, Right? even though they put carrots out and he ate the cookie. Are you with me? 
the, the, the reasoning lacked. And so when I was a child, I thought like a child, and I, what? Reasoned like a child. But then when I became older, Paul says, I left childish things behind me. And so I think one of the things that's happened is we haven't given ourselves a more, if I can say this, a more adult version of God. And by the way, this will help us understand a lot of the Bible. Because a lot of the Bible is you're watching people go from childlike views to more grown-up views. Jesus said it this way, you've heard it said, but I tell you. Right? He helped them transition from a childish faith, not childlike, there's a difference, right, to a more adult version. So, what was this curtain that was torn when Jesus died that Matthew writes about? All right, first of all, before we even talk about that, you have to understand where this sanctuary was. It was uh, in the temple area. Now, um, Jesus, was, of course, was Jewish, and he would have uh, traveled to Jerusalem for festivals probably at least three times a year and uh, with his family. And this is where everyone went to worship. Now, the thing you need to understand about the temple that a lot of like American, like, you know, Flint type people don't get, we just think temple like, I grew up, yeah, there was a church on this corner and there's a church on, you know, South Avenue and Main Street had about seven of them. This wasn't a church, right? It wasn't a church anyway, but it wasn't a church building. It wasn't even a sanctuary. It wasn't a synagogue. It was the temple. That is to say, there weren't a bunch of them. There was one. It was special. It was the, the, the most important place to a Jewish person on planet Earth. So you get up and you can go to this church or that church or, you know, I used to grow up here. This was, there's one place. And why was this important? Because they believed, they taught, that is where... What? God lived. That was God's address. If you say, where do you pray? In fact, some of you know that if you have Muslim brothers or sisters or friends or aunts or uncles or neighbors or coworkers, they, to this day, when they pray, they face towards what? Mecca, right? They, 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 they arrange their room to face because they believe that's a special place. Jewish people, in Jesus' day, believed that the temple was a special place. I think I have a couple of pictures for you. The temple was not just any old building. The temple mount was about, this is important, about a fifth of the size of the entire city of Jerusalem. All right? So, if you can look here, this platform area, all right, that they built, all right, was about 36 acres, 36 acres, built on a mountaintop. Are you with me? So the mountaintop goes like this, and uh, you can take that off because no one's paying attention to me anymore, all right? And uh, um, mountain, all right? And then you have to build massive retaining walls, massive. I could do a whole series on that, how massive these stones were. But they, so they had to build it up, and it's 36 acres. They estimate, all right, it may have contained 125,000, some, some people will say a quarter of a million people. On a festival day, this was the place to be. But it was layered, it was tiered. You could go in so far, and then if you were, uh, if you were not Jewish, you had to stop here, okay? They had barriers, they had walls, 
and it would say, you know, if you are if you're Jewish, you can advance. If you're a Gentile, you can go no further. And then they would have another barrier. And if you were female, you could go no further. Sorry, gals. Um, and then had another barrier. And if you were a priest, that is, so if you were Jewish and male, but you were of a certain family, you could go a step closer, right? So if you were if you were male, Jewish, priest family, you could keep getting closer and closer and closer until they had this area called the holy place. And then all the priests could go. And then inside of the holy place was what they called the holy of holies. And in there, only one person of the high priest could go, and that he could go only once a year. Now, just think about what this does to you psychologically. What happens if you're downtown and you're walking around looking for a place to eat, and all of a sudden there's a massive line of people trying to get into this one restaurant that you've never heard of? What do you do? First thing you do is you got, I got to get in there. What's going on in there? Why does everyone want to be in that restaurant? And they got a big guy out there standing, big tattoos, right? And he's pushing people away. What does it do? It makes you want it all the more. I want to know what's in there. I gotta, and so this particular place was what they call the Holy of Holies. And what separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies was this curtain. All right? You can read about it in the Old Testament. You can read about it in Exodus 26. But it's not so important that we get into the details today except to know that this curtain separated where people could go from where supposedly God was. Now, think about this. Perhaps it was 10 football fields Crowds of people. This was the original big house, right? And this wasn't just one of a a few massive places. This was the place to be. And the story built up. This is where God is. People went there to get their sins forgiven. People went there after their children were born. And they made sacrifices. And they made dedications. And it made them feel like, yes, God's blessing me. Or God's taking care of me. Or God's forgiving me. So the question is, why was it torn? And if I can just, can I just extend some teaching for just a minute, just a minute for some of us that didn't grow up in church or Sunday school or grew up with some bad versions? Ready? A lot of people say it was torn. This is, this is what you will find if you look on the internet, you travel to most churches. And if I could be contrarian for just a minute, most people will say it was torn so that when Jesus died, now you can get to God. People like that. Oh, that's great because now I can get to God. And before I couldn't get to God, but because Jesus died, I could get to God. One other guy wrote online about it. Very interesting and talks about it. No, it wasn't so that we could get into God. It was actually so that God could get out. I've heard people write about it. It was symbolically like God tearing his own clothes because of his grief. But think about it. We knew the answer to this question thousands of years ago. The prophets knew the answer to this question. It wasn't so we could finally get to God. It wasn't so God could get let out. Ready? The prophets before Jesus even came along said this. Isaiah 
God doesn't live in what? Houses built by human hands. Ready? The, the curtain was torn because it was to show, ready? It's a scam. Oh, I just dis- disappointed some of you, didn't I? There's what? Nothing there. The whole thing was exposed, by the way, a few years after Jesus died, probably about 30 years after Jesus died, the whole thing was demolished anyway. The Romans came in and knocked the whole thing down, right? So where did God go? Now you think about this. Now just stay with me. What do you mean? I thought that was a very special place. And No, what Jesus did was he exposed that we don't need any of that stuff. That is as old as Isaiah and the prophet saying God doesn't, God doesn't need a house to live in. Let me think about this. How lame would it be if our God needed a house and needed it to be ornate and overlaid with gold? By the way, I could go on and on teaching you about what the temple was like. By the way, it was quite the moneymaker. The people, think about it, if you're the, now, God lives here. Guess what? I happen to have the keys. No, just think about it. Somebody has to have the keys, right? Someone has to be in charge of letting people in and out, the high priest, or letting you close. And if you have the, I mean, who doesn't want to be like, have God in your box? Um, I, I was telling some of our group this, because uh, a few years ago, I took a, a, a bunch of folks of uh, our family here to Israel, and we went to Jerusalem. And... Um, um, there's a church that's built where over the place where they traditionally believe Jesus was crucified, right? And it's uh, and so people go there, and there's huge lines. It's the same thing. There's just massive lines of people. And I, I sort of warned our team. I said, "Look, you guys, I know you're coming all the way to Israel to to have like a, a meaningful like experience processing where Jesus died and everything, but this probably won't be it." I said, "This is going to feel like you're at Walmart on Black Friday." Right, and that's exactly what it feels like. You get there, and it's just crushes of people. You have to think about it. It's a big world, right, of people that want to see where Jesus died, and it's just a crowd of people, and pretty much you just get angry. All right. After the whole thing was over, I mean, it's it's quite an experience because there's just a bunch of people, and it's in this building, and it's just it's not what you think it's going to be. But anyway, when it's over, I was talking to um, our our tour guide. And this is what he told me. He said, do you know there's, there's like three or four churches that claim that's their territory, right? And that they can't agree that some they fight. It's like, I don't know who it is, so I don't want to cast stones on anybody. The Roman Orthodox and the Russian Orthodox and the Greek Orthodox and the, and the Catholic Church. And they're all saying, no, this is our land. This is our church building. Get this. They had to give the key to a Muslim guy. Because they couldn't agree on who gets to open and close the building. Now, why am I saying that? Because there's a lot of power if you have the, what? The key. If you have the power to the key, the power of the key to the presence of God, that is, you can unlock it until you can come in, you can go out. No, no, no. Sorry, female, no. Uh, right? You're a powerful person. 
And so what Jesus did, and I don't know if everyone got this. I, it's, I feel like the whole church has had like a 2,000-year-old hangover. Like we're just waking up. Get it? Ready? God was never there. What stop with all the stories about now finally we can get to God? No, this is Isaiah. This is way before Jesus. He was never there. It, did anybody see the Wizard of Oz? Huh? Remember the great and powerful rah, 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 until Toto pulls the curtain back? Are you with me? And it's like, wah, wah, wah. Do you know the Gospel of Matthew ends with wah, wah, wah. We're going to open this curtain in a minute so you can see what's behind this curtain. All right? Because we've been saving this for a little bit. So uh, I have some friends that are going to help me. Well, or God's going to open it. I'm not sure which, but we'll see how it happens. Um, and this is, this, is, this is so important because this goes back to prayer. When you, when you pray, you're thinking of something. You're thinking God is somewhere. And a lot of people, we believe that God is you know, in some far, far away place because most of us learn to pray, our Father who is in what? So the first thing that comes to most people, and I, I'm going to teach on that, I'm going to get there. We've got a lot to do, all right? How many are going to come for the series? You're going to hang out for a bit. Okay, we're going to get to a lot of stuff. So the first thing, the disservice that we're done there is we think God is what? Like, I got to be like, if I just say it just right, it'll get to him. And he's on this throne. Now, where do we get all these ideas? In these imperial ages, right? And God looks, yeah. Yeah, a lot of men. Right? And then you make your request, and you, you do it, and you try to say all the words right. Has anybody ever met somebody famous and said something really stupid? No, have you? Like you met somebody that was like famous, or like, and you're trying to get the words out, and you just started fumbling because you're getting too nervous, right? It's like we have this thing, like we have to get all of our words right so God will listen to us. Um, let me see if the curtain's ready to open. Just can you wiggle the curtain from the back if it's ready? Oh, see, that is God right there. All right. Okay, so anyway, so the curtain gets torn in two. Are you guys ready? Here we go. We'll tear it open. I, th I think it's going to tear. Clap for it. There we go. Yeah. Just how it happened in the Bible. Just how it happened in the Bible. All right. Uh, um, this is what we want to talk about. You are not ordinary, you're extraordinary. And the reason that we call this all access is so important. Prayer is not special people talking to special places. Prayer is ordinary people like you and me, knowing that anytime, anywhere, any place, we can talk to God. You don't have to be in a special position. You don't have to have a special title. You don't have to call the church. You're welcome to call the church, right? But how often, think about this. How often do people get this idea like, I need to have Chris pray for me? Trust me, I think it's a downgrade, honestly, right? But you don't need me or somebody special to pray for you. Um, I, heard, I heard this uh, Episcopal, Episcopal priest tell a story about his wife being diagnosed with cancer. 
I think most of you would relate to this story in some form. And because he was a public figure, a lot of people started praying. And they formed what, what they call prayer chains and prayer groups, and it spread from one to another. And he said he really appreciated the outpouring of love from all these people. His wife was supposed to live for two years, they diagnosed. As the two-year mark came close, people kept praying and sending notes that they were praying, and it went past the two-year mark. And then it went past three years, and then it went past four years, and she ended up living six years. And this priest, Episcopal priest, said, after about the halfway through the second year passed, he said, now the prayer group started taking credit for it. They had, they had talked to God into letting her live, not two, but six years. The whole thing gets a little convoluted, doesn't it, at some point? And he could feel himself, he said, feeling nothing but appreciation for the people and the love, the outpouring of love that it showed that they were all praying. But he can only help but think, well, what if... What if I wasn't famous or well-known? What if I was just a guy that cleaned ditches? I, I didn't have the star power to get hundreds of people praying. Would God still have answered that prayer? It was as if they were setting it up. It was like, because we got all these people praying now, and, and we've all done it. We've all heard it. You know, you've heard, it's like, you know, my grandma's like, oh, you know, she'll get something to me. And then, you know, and you get it to somebody else. And like, oh, we got a lot of people. As if God all of a sudden goes, well, we have a mutiny here. I better, I better tune in. And I, again, I don't mean to downplay anybody. Are you with me? Just stay, just stay. Because these are real questions honest people, honest people have. And we're going to talk about in this series what I call the, the magic, in quotes, and the mystery of prayer. Because you have, it has to be some mystery there. It can't be, well, the guy who can get the most people praying wins. That can't be it. It can't be that there are certain people and secret recipes and sacred places. Huh. You know, Stephen... If you, know, you don't know the story of Stephen, do yourself a favor and read from Acts chapter 7. But Stephen is about, uh, he's defending himself, and he's a, he, if you know the story, it doesn't end well in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7. He ends up being stoned. Right before he's stoned, this is what he says. Solomon built a house for God. That was the temple. Right? However, everybody say however, one, two, three. However, Solomon, here, here he is, Solomon built a house for God. And I get so many people with Christian hangovers like, yep, that's the Lord's house. That's where, no, he says Solomon built it. And then Stephen says, however, one, two, three, however. Who are you siding with, Solomon or Stephen? The Most High, Stephen says, doesn't live in houses built by human hands. You won't find him there. As the prophet says, and he's quoting Isaiah, what kind of houses would you build for me? <laughs> would it be a track home?
God doesn't live there? Ready? That was right before they stoned him. Please take your rocks with you. Why is it so offensive for people? Why is this so hard to unlearn? Because there's something in us. Go online today. You can see pictures of Mecca. Hundreds of thousands of people surrounding a black Kabbalah stone. You can see in Jerusalem people at walls. You can see, I'm not, I'm not knocking anyone's faith. Christians do it. Jewish people do it. Muslim people do it. Everybody's suffering this massive hangover. I'm just trying to tell you straight. You can quote Isaiah. You can quote Jesus. You can quote Stephen. He doesn't live there. God is not in a special place. This is actually good news. We should be happy about this. He's not behind a curtain. You don't need a special pass. You don't even need that one we gave you. God is with you right here. Guess where God is? On 696. Some of you go, no, he is not. The devil is there. Right? No, listen, my friends, this will change your faith forever. Forever. If you start to actually believe that God is on 696. If you start to believe that God is with you on your commute to work. If you start to believe that God is with you in those small places throughout your day. If you start to believe that God is with you at the kitchen table, when you're watching TV, when you're taking a walk in the woods, one of the things that we say a lot, and it's again, it's one of these Christian kind of well-meaning things, and I get it, I get it, I get it. But we say things like this a lot. I got closer to God. I went to this and this, and I got closer to God. Has anybody said this or heard this said? I got closer to God. Ready? I love you. I love all you guys. Ready? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. How could you be closer than right next to you? How could you be closer than right beside you? How could you be closer than within you? You didn't get closer to God. Ready? Stay with me. Don't throw anything you became more aware of how close God is to you. That's what you did. See, I felt, well, yeah, because you became more what? Aware. Here's what we're going to work on during this series. Look, we're not going to work on trying to travel and get through curtains and over countries and get to where God is. We're going to work on becoming aware. Becoming aware that God is with you Always. He never leave you, never forsake you. Do you remember Paul teaching in Athens? And Paul says something. It's Acts 17. Paul says, uh, I want to talk to you about this. They have these statue to what they called an unknown God. And so Paul uses it as like a, as like a launching point to give a talk impromptu to the people in Athens. And he says, God, ready, doesn't live 
in houses, doesn't live in temples. Now, this is foreign because in their day, if you were Jewish, you thought he lived in the temple. And if you were Roman or Greek, you thought he lived in one of the, one of the gods, lived in one of the special places where big money. And he says, no, God is, ready? Not far, Acts 17. God is, let's say it together, ready? One, two, three, not far. Not far. What does he mean? He's near. In fact, he says, it's in him that we live and move and have our existence. Paul Tillich called it the ground of being. (laughs) In him, you have your existence. He's everywhere. He He is existence. He's not in a place. I don't have time, but here's what I want to say. Ah, All right, I don't have time. But here's the thing. Here's why I think you should dive in. Prayer, and we're going to talk about this. Is it a list of things that you get answered? Yes or no, the Santa Claus list, checking it twice. Okay, maybe that's, okay. But maybe we can move past that. Listen, but a lifetime of prayer, and some of you need a new word because the word prayer has already wrecked for you. It's already a certain formula. It's just, so you, I can give you a couple other words that early church used, like contemplation, etc. but that's not the point. The point is this. A life of prayer, not a prayer, like something you say, now I lay me down to sleep, right? Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die, why do we teach kids these things? If I die before I wake, dear God. <laughs> what are you traumatizing our kids? <laughs> Did anyone learn that one, or am I just out to lunch? Okay, dear God, if I die, you know. There's a confidence booster right before bed, kids. Huh? A good how do you do? Wow. (sighs) Um, But prayer might change you from being an anxious person a worried person, an angry person, a troubled person, to a kind, thoughtful, reflective, sensitive, caring person. That's my goal. Because... One of the things that it says in First Peter, it says, cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Cast all your anxieties on him. To me, that's what prayer is. It's not about getting them answered or not getting them answered, although some of you like to keep score so you can show your friends, I got one answered, right? That's fine. But if you just go giving them to God, first thing I know is this, everyone has cares, everyone here. It's what you're thinking about now when you're not listening to me. Right? You're worried about your house. You're worried about your car. You're worried about your health. You're worried about your kids. You're worried about your grades. You're worried about your promotion, your lack of promotion. Everybody has cares. Second, everyone casts them on somebody. Listen. Everyone has cares, and everyone casts them on somebody. Hmm? Your dog have a couple broken ribs? Huh? You cast them on your kids, you cast them on your spouse, you cast them on your coworkers, 
You cast them on yourself. Some of you are so self-disciplined that you just won't do it on your family, but you cast it, and what does it do? It stresses you out. You just pile it on, and you become increasingly upset and angry and ulcer-filled. And I remember it. Everyone has cares, and everyone casts them. Everyone throws them on somebody. Prayer allows us a, a life of prayer. It teaches us to get rid of that. And it teaches us so much more that I don't have time for today. I'm just going to have to cut it short. But listen, I think if you were to let yourself embrace a whole new idea of what prayer is and how it works and how God works, this can be revolutionary for you. It might change your life forever. That would be my hope. That would be my prayer. A life of peace, which is why Paul said this. Give your prayers to God, Philippians 4, 7, right? And the peace of God, which transcends human understanding. You could say, that guy's got so much on him, that gal, but they're at peace. So prayer is entering into a life of peace. It's exiting the rat race. It's exiting the other and entering into something new. All right.